What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi, I'm Daniel, producer at Intelligence Squared. This episode is a special one. We're very excited to bring you Samantha Power, who is the former US ambassador to the UN under Barack Obama. She was interviewed by Helen Lewis of The Atlantic on her new book, The Education of an Idealist, which is a look over her life and career at the center of American diplomacy. We hope you enjoy listening to the episode. And if you do, please make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to find the show and lets us know what you think. Hello, I'm Helen Lewis, staff writer for The Atlantic. Welcome to this episode of the Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here with Samantha Power, the former US ambassador to the United Nations under President Obama from 2013 to 2017, and now the author of The Education of an Idealist. Samantha, thank you for joining us. And I have to say, I really enjoyed the book to a level that was difficult for me because I had to read it quickly because I knew I was doing this. And I actually, I really wanted to slow down and read it Aww. more slowly because it covers an enormous span. The beginning bit is your memoir of growing up and all the things that shaped you as a person through to some incredibly gritty discussions of Syria policy, Russia and the Ukraine, Central African Republic, and your time at the UN. But I want to start with your, your education, because I thought it was really interesting. You, you seem to me to be presenting yourself in the book as a product of a particular time in American history. Mm. So you went to work um, as a journalist in the former Yugoslavia and saw what a lack of intervention did there. You talk about going to a concentration camp and seeing a, a room full of, you know, thanks to America for liberating it. So you seem to have come of age in a time when there was much more of a positive feeling about what America could do in the rest of the world and actually what the problems were when it didn't do that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think now we're, we're so divided that to have written a book that simply began, as I was tempted to do, by the way, in the Obama years, because I thought... There's Irish people sometimes say that no Irish person can even use the first person in therapy. <laughs> so I was – it was hard to get over that and to you know feel presumptuous in writing a memoir. But I thought you know, at a time when we are drifting at an official level from first principles as a diverse country that America has always been, a country of immigrants – a country that believes in alliances and alliances making us stronger, a country that has led for good or bad um, in different chapters of our history but nonetheless has helped shape the international order as a force for good, I believe. But if you simply kind of say, these are the right principles, why can't we go back to them? That's not likely to be terribly persuasive at a time when nobody is all that good at changing our minds these days. And so I did go back to the beginning. And part of that was describing the story of being an immigrant from Dublin, Ireland to America at the age of nine, so very young, and viewing America as a kind of wonderland where everything was big and there were lots of channels on the TV that they didn't have in Ireland and everything was in English, nothing was in Irish. And it was, for a child, a kind of idyllic upbringing of one kind, great uh, education through America's public schools, exposure to history, a you know, and to the extent that American schools do it, exposure to the Holocaust, to the idea of never again. And then graduating from university just after the wall had fallen, just a couple of years after the Berlin Wall had fallen, just after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So if you combine the kind of commitment of never again that is really taught in American schools, maybe even more than you'd expect, with that unipolar moment 
where it wasn't just that the United States was unencumbered by, let's say, Russia or China, which is such a force today, but it was also that there was a recognition that you needed to figure out what the new rules of the road were and kind of what values were going to undergird what you did internationally. Like the raison d'etre for the previous, you know, nearly 50 years had been just whatever the Soviet Union wants, you know, want the opposite mm -hmm. and and stand up to them with assistance or, you know, embrace the domino theory, however you know, sort of far you wanted to take the zero-sum mindset. It wasn't a positive-sum approach to the international system. And so to come of age and to graduate into a very, very hopeful moment where, as I write in the book, you know, the, the book The End of History was atop the bestseller list where people were talking about the ultimate triumph of liberal democracy and liberalism and, and, and then to be – to confront just initially as a citizen but what was happening in the former Yugoslavia to see these – kind of anachronistic forces like, wait, no, didn't you get the memo? History's over. Western liberalism is going to prevail. Ethnic conflict is a thing of the past. And to see people so invested in their sense that their communities were in peril, in some cases a realistic sense, in some cases a kind of alibi for doing terrible things to other communities. And, you know, it was less even that my impulse was around any particular thing we should do, but though it's true, I did support uh, the Clinton administration, you know, using military force in Bosnia, and it did bring the war to an end within a couple of weeks uh, in a way that was very beneficial for the people who I'd lived among when I was a war correspondent. But it was more, it was bigger than that in a way. It was less about sort of what is the particular thing you do in a particular circumstance and more about this is a moment, you know, this is a moment potentially to shape what what lies ahead this is a moment to support countries that themselves are democratizing and have no experience having free elections and so it was it's a moment that's hard to describe today because we're in a moment that feels almost like it's polar opposite right because um, this is the thing i'm uh, i'm 36 so i was at university during the iraq war so my kind of formative experiences are the exact opposite you know the idea that Western intervention must inevitably be driven by corrupt, self-serving motives, that it will always be you know, badly planned and badly executed and kind of leave a country in a more fragmented, you know, state than before prone to sectarian violence. Those are the kind of messages that I think I got my international education. But I think one thing that really struck me reading your book about your time in, I think, Bosnia, about going and seeing the uh, an enclave which was being surrounded by Serb soldiers and, and finding a local businessman had been supplying food to the Serbs in order that he could also supply food to the enclave, right? And that from the outside, you would say, what a kind of mercenary thing to do. But people inside there right. said, he's our hero. We're, you know, he's the, he, he's the only reason that we're eating. And it made me think that there, a lot of foreign policy debates end up not being about the people themselves, right, but about us. What does it say about us? What does it say about American power? What does it say about mm. British power? As if it's because fundamentally, and I think you write this as well about your friend getting kidnapped, we find it easier to talk about ourselves than we do about people far away whose lives we don't have any connection to. Absolutely. And that's – I was fortunate in my very, very formative beginnings of my you know, sort of post-university life to be a journalist in the world, which which – when you're there, you only realize how much more complex everything is than you thought it was from afar. You become – I mean it wasn't as if I, I lost enthusiasm for the United States doing more to end the war. If anything, my my uh, desire to see something be done was deepened by seeing up close what people – how people were suffering through the consequences of war. But you know, I hadn't thought of it that way in the in the context of of the moral ambiguity around this individual who was again making money but also feeding his people. But I think there is moral ambiguity in in just about everything that confronts people at the highest levels of government. I mean, um, you know, would take a big success story, sort of the antidote to the cynicism that the Iraq War would generate, which is President Obama's response to the Ebola crisis, which I write about where you know even though the politics were terrible in the US with democrats even joining republicans and calling for travel bans of health workers who were going to west africa to try to help the liberians sierra leoneans and guineans who were just confronting the worst epidemic 1.4 million people 
expected to be infected. And, you know, I decided in the midst of this, President Obama had decided to send 3,000 troops and health workers into the eye of the storm in spite of the politics to confront the fear. And I thought, well, I'll be helpful. You know, I'll go and I'll show that you can go and then you can come home and you'll be safe. And I'll use that to try to kind of cool fevers here around um, the stigma of being in having been in an Ebola affected region. And I'll bring people from the Defense Department and the aid community and we'll bring the media and we'll show these heroic health workers doing their thing on the ground and valorize this these sacrifices and these commitments they're making because we should be celebrating American ingenuity and the resilience of the people on the ground. And this is a moment, right, of U.S. leadership, of the U.N. working finally the way it should because there's a leader and then people chip in. And um, I'm just about to go and I'm feeling very noble, if a bit trepidatious from mm-hmm. the standpoint of having also two small children and my son saying, you're going to the Bola place, don't go to the Bola place. But And then Susan Rice calls me, who's then the National Security Advisor, had been UN ambassador before me, and she's like, Sam, I'm not so sure about this trip. Like, what do you mean? You know, I'm, I'm taking one for the team. Like, this is important. And, and she said, well, what if the politics, which are already completely out of whack and have nothing to do with science or epidemiology or how you actually practically deal with this crisis, but they're just about politics and pandering and fear-mongering, what if they change – while you're away and they decide that anybody who's flying back from the region has to be quarantined. And I'm thinking, what? You know, they wouldn't do that. And then I'm thinking, wait, they could do anything, right? It's mm. it's American politics. And once you depart from – it's like on climate, right? Once you're not grounded in the science or in what's actually needed, you know, they're in madness lies. And so, so even there – again, they, like something that seems so clear strategically and morally – gets clouded by an understanding of the constraints and the other actors who are on the scene. And so I think, you know, I talk about the education of an idealist, you know, on issue after issue. It doesn't mean I lose my desire to go or I lose my desire to fight fear, which has become an even more pernicious factor, I think, in in UK and American politics. But it does mean that you learn to anticipate better, you know, kind of all that stands in the way and, and learn to recognize that it may be a world of gray areas that you're in where you have to choose among lesser evils, but the political world is very binary and it's very black and white and you have to somehow sell what you're doing also against that very black and white backdrop. And it does also raise the idea that one of the big foreign policy problems in terms of the politics of it is that the the calculus between credit likely to accrue to you and blame likely <laughs> to accrue to you is completely disproportionate, right? So, the Ebola, as you say, Ebola, a phenomenal success story and a vaccine created and hundreds, thousands of lives saved. Very little register, I imagine, on any, even elite American public opinion, right? Whereas a disastrous intervention comes back to haunt you forever and ever and ever. Is there any, is that just the way it is? Or is there any way to change that? Well, I mean, I think polarization isn't isn't helping the cause, right? Because there is a universe, and it's not the one we live in at the moment, but where there would have been a parade, right, for the health workers who come home, and and the fact that our military and our public health professionals, you know, worked in lockstep with one another, a kind of celebration of the diverse range of tools in the toolbox, you know, not a war, but a use of our ingenuity and our logistic capability. I mean, you could imagine a kind of, you know, society-wide embrace, but if half the politicians seated in the U.S. Congress are just want to do the opposite of what the President of the United States does and thus doesn't have any incentive, views everything as zero-sum in that context, that's going to make it really hard to get that that kind of embrace. But I think, I mean, we tried, uh, I think, and I, again, I think Ebola is more a stand-in for the the larger phenomenon of, of um, damned if you do and and quiet. It's not even damned if you do, damned if you don't. It might be that as well. But it's also, um, you know, sort of not heralded if you do and do well. And so in the cost-benefit, the sort of incentive structure gets a bit skewed. So, you know, I think whoever wins the 2020 election, I mean, provided it's an alternative to the current leader, you know, to think through how you get more buy-in on the front end. I, I mean, what I'm what I'm suggesting <laughs> is 
is easy to state as a as a kind of problem to be solved and much much harder to execute but you know was is there a way to get people from different you know walks of life from different sides of the aisle to stand together on the front end of some of these big initiatives so that they have an incentive on the back end if something goes well also to take credit for it. Well, I'm, I'm going to bring you yeah. I'm going to bring you on to current American politics because I don't think it's avoidable. But while we're just still on uh, on your education, I thought one of the things I had not realized was that Al-Qaeda were operating in Bosnia, right? That this is that actually there is a kind of franchise jihad movement where people will turn up and get training in other places. And I'm sure there will have been fighters who will have been trained in Syria who will end up in other conflicts. That it's much more global. Conflicts that look very localized are not, in fact. Well, it gets to the larger question about the relationship between our interests and our values. And there is a growing strain, again, in the present of believing that you can kind of look away from these conflicts and build your walls and have your Muslim bans and and, you know, just as on Ebola, but also on many, many conflicts in many parts of the world, these places become incubators um, of whether it's drug trafficking or arms smuggling or radicalization. Um, Syria, there were many reasons to to want to see a more effective Western governmental response or American response to Syria but you didn't even have to get to the fact that hundreds of thousands of Syrians were being killed. You simply had to take note of how many foreign terrorist fighters were pouring into Syria and who one day would wish to come home. You simply had to take note of the fact that left unchallenged, the Assad regime's crimes were going to continue to draw people from all around the world and that they that they in turn were setting up mechanisms for propagating extremism through social media and on the internet that were reaching people in Orlando, Florida and San Bernardino, California. And so the idea that your your values um, and, and the desire t- for parts of the world to be stabilized, even if you don't have a silver bullet or a magic wand to make that happen, but, but the idea that that exists and happens apart from you and the welfare of your people, I think is just very old school. It's very 18th century. It's not the world we live in, you know, no more than the idea that, you know, you're powerful enough because you're America that you can go it alone. You, you can't. And and Al-Qaeda using Bosnia as a refuge is one example of that where earlier action would have conceivably had the same results it ultimately had sooner before that kind of radicalization occurred. There would have been fewer divisions. Bosnia today, all these years later, would have had less to recover from, you know, the grievances would be maybe less deep-seated. ISIS, between Assad and him as a magnet for uh, foreign fighters to come to, to Syria, and and Iraq, and the very, to call it repressive governance, or governance that was so negligent of the fate of Sunni people, and so disenfranchising, really, of a huge sector of the population, that then, again, created a community that was very receptive to radicalization. So when we engage the Iraqi government on human rights, it's not to be Pollyannish. It's to tell them that it is in your interest, it is in our interest, for there not to be al-Qaeda 2.0. And and when they ignore us or when we don't do it sufficiently or at a high enough level, you get al-Qaeda 2.0, which is ISIS. The uh, the leader of the opposition and potentially the next prime minister, we've got an election on December the 12th. His top aide is a guy called Seamus Milne, who was a Guardian columnist for a long time. And he wrote in the 2000s essentially saying Milosevic should not have been tried at The Hague. It had no legitimacy. And is, does it surprise you that there are views like that out there that are so, even in a conflict which to me is, seems as clear-cut as Yugoslavia, not as muddy as Iraq, that a section of the British left and I presume American left too would end up in that place? Well, I think they haven't spent enough time on the ground with the mothers of Srebrenica, you know, who lost, I read about one mother, you know, who loses four of her sons, her husband in the massacre. And on one level, I agree, it would be preferable to have local forms of accountability for the murder of 8,000 men and boys, but that was not on offer. There was no conceivable pathway for those mothers to see justice if it didn't occur by virtue of the international community someplace else. And you can take issue certainly with decisions made by the British government or the American government, whether the invasion of Iraq or anything we in the Obama administration did. There's plenty to take issue with, of course, but sort of two wrongs don't make a right. That doesn't mean that you then end up in a situation where you deem a country like the United States as 
as disqualified or sort of so structurally tainted that it can't do good for example on climate change you know you could you could come to the decision that america should be judged blameworthy for all of the lost years on climate change but does that mean you don't want action now no you absolutely need the united states to get back into playing a catalytic role which it has done too rarely on that issue you may believe that the intervention in libya you know which was done for all i was in the room and write in the book about being in the room was done for all the right reasons with all the legitimacy from the un security council with nato's backing with the arab league's backing with libya's own ambassador to the un turning to the general to the general public and to the other ambassadors and begging for help so that his people would not be killed you can believe, though, that that didn't have the consequences that one would have hoped for long term. Sorry, so the ambassador essentially defects to the opposition party. His deputy sitting behind him has defected about a week yes. previously. And they're both there saying, please, please invade my country. Effectively. I mean, or please protect our civilians is what they're yeah. saying. And they, you know, that the form that would take would be air power. And, um, and believing that compared to the alternative of letting Gaddafi turn his guns on his people, that that would be preferable. But you could have even thought that was a good idea and then say, well, you know what? We're just so bad at the aftermath. In this case, it wasn't even about us being bad. It was about the Libyans not wanting Western or international help in the aftermath and and then the divisive forces within Libya kind of taking hold and giving rise to the dreadful circumstances that exist today. But even if you take issue with any version of that, that doesn't mean you wouldn't want the United States to be mobilizing an anti-Ebola coalition or engaging the Iranian government to do away with its nuclear weapons peacefully. Um, nor does it mean that you'd want the United States to refrain from sending peacekeepers you know, to the Central African Republic when a genocide is looming or to South Sudan for that matter. You may wish that the way in which we send them is more sensitive, again, to these human consequences, and you should wish that. But that's an argument for engaging the instruments of power that are affecting people's lives. That's an argument for bringing the voices of people affected by conflict into policy deliberations in a way that they're not sufficiently. But it, it can't be an argument for, for turning off or for giving up. One of the most interesting sections in the book is about those decisions about Syria. And you confirm something that was reported at the time, which is that the British vote in Parliament was really key in, in shaping American opinion and meaning that Obama then pulls the vote in Congress, which he, he had called to give you know, himself some backing against warnings that actually the support really wasn't there. And there's a very one of your very nice footnotes that kind of says, you know, this was David Cameron's rushing hastily towards something in a way that we would see again in the Brexit referendum a couple of years later, which I think is is something that you'd find a lot of support for in in Britain too. That one of the flaws of David Cameron's premiership was a kind of over hasty, glib, it'll be okay, not preparing the ground. I'm going to write. Is that is that how you see that? I think. The, the two decisions to go to parliament over the joining the coalition to respond to Assad's chemical weapons attack and going to the Brexit referendum share that feature for sure. And, you know, when I think about David Cameron, we, he's I think we're roughly the same age, maybe he's a little bit older, but we would have come of age at the same time. And we all sort of like when you drank the water, you just – the idea was that history, that the curve of history would sort of bend toward justice. Well, that's Obama's speech, isn't it? The arc of history is long when it bends towards yeah, justice. Yeah, but what and... Obama says, but it doesn't bend on its own. Yeah. And to be fair to British decision makers, including Prime Minister Cameron, Obama made the same mistake. He went to our Congress and in retrospect, again, we thought we likely had support, but we hadn't really laid the groundwork. You, you, you really – I think if you're the commander in chief, especially, or one of his advisors, as I was, you can't afford to leave to chance or sort of assumptions about who will land where. You know, we should have run the numbers and done the due diligence because for the Congress then to say to Obama, the commander in chief, no, you don't have our support. Democrats, because they remember the war in Iraq and they're nervous that Syria will spiral out of hand. Republicans, because they just want to do the opposite of whatever Barack Obama wants to do, which of course we should have anticipated. But it meant that the rug was kind of pulled out from under the commander in chief. Luckily, we improvised and I negotiated, as I describe in the book, with the Russian ambassador, the dismantlement of most of Syria's chemical weapons stockpile, 1,300 tons destroyed. So something good came out of this very, very difficult sequence. But I'm not sure we ever recovered 
globally the impression that people had had previously, which is that the president could deliver fundamentally his party or the Congress as a whole. And so it was a, it was a damaging episode. And it does reflect a, a kind of, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't even call it naive, but I mean, a, a deeply human belief that when you present facts like the gassing of the children in the dead of night or facts like you know, now that Assad is used at scale, we have reason to believe that these weapons will uh, be used by others and indeed could fall into the wrong hands. I mean, pretty sound assessments of what was likely to happen if chemical w- weapons use continued. You would think, <laughs> right, that notwithstanding the polarization in our country, that Republicans who had been for the use of force five minutes before might feel ashamed to flip on a dime after the worst atrocity of the war and and the worst chemi- and the only chemical weapons attack in 25 years so so definitely part of the education is is learning to you know never overestimate your political opposition's capacity to put its own fortunes over the welfare of of your country well we're going to take a short break now but I'll be back in a moment with Samantha Power and I'm joined by Samantha Power, whose book, Education, an Idealist, is out now. Um, I want to start by going back again to the, your origin story, because you write very movingly about your childhood in Ireland, and particularly about your father, who was an alcoholic, and your your mother left him and took you and your brother to America. And it struck me that that was, a, that was an interesting kind of reflection between that and your later experiences, because there was no one really to stage an intervention for him in the crudest possible terms. And if you're going to talk about how do you make other people's lives better, well, there was there was no structure in place to, to make his life better. That must have been hard. Definitely. And I, and I write about years of therapy as I try to mm. sort this through and, and just the extent to which I was carrying a sense of responsibility for for not having been there myself. I mean, of course, I was just a, a little girl, and what the therapists teach you is is uh, you know that you exaggerate your agency as a child. You you think you have powers that you don't, um, powers you wish you had, I suppose. And so, there's no question that that I feel privileged that later in my life I was in a position to be able to raise the voices of people who may not have otherwise had a champion. So in the wake of the Syrian chemical weapons attack, to bring into the Security Council a survivor of those attacks who'd been left for dead, you know, literally in a, in a row of, of corpses, and, and only because a friend passed by and saw movement in him was he even lifted from that row of corpses, but to bring him into the Security Council and in his own words, you know, to tell his story to to the Russians and others and to just make sure that people, even when we're, that's not going to be a panacea or it's not going to overcome Putin's opposition, but that the dignity of these individuals who too often are just left out of the, the conversation about what we do. It also reminded me, a couple of years ago, I interviewed a, a wonderful woman called Sue Black, who's a forensic anatomist. She works in Dundee and she worked in uh, in the former Yugoslavia. She was sent over, she went and I think she, you know, she, she missed Rwanda because she was pregnant, but she's mm. various atrocities. She came over and identified remains and she went to work in a, a barn where one guy had hidden behind all of his compatriots and they'd all been shot He'd been hiding under. They'd set the barn on fire, and he'd crawled out to safety. and And she'd gone to go and collect the evidence for this happening. And I remember meeting her and hearing this incredibly horrifying, moving story. And she had several like it. And then someone said to me, "But the thing is, that Sue is one of the happiest people that I I know. She's able to put this stuff mm-hmm. aside." And it's something that I kept thinking when I was reading your book is. One of the reasons I think when people don't want to care about foreign news too much is because you can't do anything about it, and it's and it's heartbreaking. And actually, how do you stop yourself from caring too much? Because there must have been times when you wanted desperately to help some group of people, and there was just no way to do it for political or other reasons. Well, maybe just to backtrack for a second, I mean, the I write the book that I've just written in the way that I do with romance and baseball and therapy and children hanging off one arm as you're trying to engage the Secretary of State or the President of the United States on the phone and swatting your child away and and, and try to humanize it in part to render, as you say, foreign policy and international affairs more relatable, more accessible to people who do feel, I think, disempowered in the face of some of these big issues of our time and feel like, where, where do I fit into all of this? And, and to show that even I at the highest level sometimes feel, where, where, where does one, what can one person do in the face of 
13 straight years of freedoms declined around the world. Well, you know, one has to find one's little thing that one can mm. do. And, and I give a number of examples of trying to free just a discrete number of female political prisoners because I, I can't deal with the human rights recession as a whole. But like, how do you find your little small slice of it that you can at least do something about? And then that empowers you and emboldens you to feel, okay, now I get up again in the morning and maybe there's something else I can do. And I think there's, I'm not saying that everybody who's out there is going to, again, be be privileged to, to be in a position to be able to try to move the U.S. government or the British government in a certain way. But there are analogs, right, in all of our lives about what is that small thing that is just a tiny slice of the larger issue from which we're tempted to look away because it seems so big. For me, I think, and you know, there were, I've had moments of getting a little overwhelmed by what it was I was reporting on or what it was in government that I was failing to to move, you know, the machinery to to make a difference on. Definitely where where you just think, oh, this is just wrenching, right? But by and large, there's a scene early in the book when I come back from Bosnia and I'm I'm reeling a bit still from having lived under siege and I have a bit of anger that I'm carrying with me and and this mentor of mine, you know, I'm sitting down with him and I'm kind of complaining and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I must have mis- misheard. Have you been ethnically cleansed? <laughs> you know, last I checked, you're sitting in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you know, you've had your byline splattered all over the Washington Post and, and you know, you're doing pretty well for yourself. You have the privilege of telling the stories of people who had no vehicle for getting their message to to people who had the power to do something to help them. Like, that's a pretty sweet setup that you had. And and I was like, you know what? That is such a good point. I was so lucky both not to find myself in those circumstances or to have my family in those circumstances of having to choose between leaving your home or risking your child as they, as they as you walk them to school in the morning. I mean, just imagine what that would be like. But then also the privilege of having this platform and, and a voice, which I, I never took for granted, still don't take for granted. And so I think that it wasn't just that encounter, but but every time I was kind of wallowing to just remember, you know, look around and say, like, and I do this, I describe this in the book of just when I would go in to tuck my children in late at night for all of my frustration of, of not having been able to crack the code on Syria or really to make the, the big difference that we needed to make uh, at a time that bat- where it mattered so much for people, I still was in the position every day to get up and to have President Obama's ear, to be able to engage the Russian ambassador at least to try to get one political prisoner out of jail, to try to get humanitarian aid to at least one part of Syria, to do a whole set of other things on other issues where we weren't as blocked. And so just to to retain that perspective, to pull back from the frustration or the feeling that you're letting people down and just look to where you you can win some battles um, and and use the privilege that you have. One of the ways I thought the book was very honest was about your relationship with Barack Obama, who emerges from this as he does from other memoirs, I think of Ben Rhodes's memoir, as an, an incredibly unusual figure, right? Very reclusive, introspective, somebody who is incredibly good at performing in front of a crowd, but actually isn't that then not like Clinton, one of those, uh, Bill Clinton, one of those kind of politicians who seems to feed off other people and need other people's energy and an audience constantly, but almost preternaturally sort of zen. There's several moments where you seem to be freaking out about something, <laughs> whether personal or, or, or political, and he sort of, he kind of pops up sort of Yoda-like. <laughs> But I think the bit that the honesty is is you worked with him when he was a, a junior senator and you were in a kind of little cubby hole in his office. And then you talk about when he becomes president, suddenly the layers go up and everybody wants something from him. And I thought it was a really great insight into that job as, you know, as it is done by somebody who really cares about doing that job well, which I don't think is necessarily something I would say about Donald Trump. But what a, a kind of monstrous job it kind of is, really. Yeah. I mean... You know that that at times I would say to myself, "Gosh, I'm I'm so focused, understandably, at the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world, but on Syrians, and am I am I sufficiently putting myself in the shoes of Obama? Mm-hmm. You know, am I am I showing empathy for my friend and my president and my boss? And as you say, he's known as a Yoda is a good description, but some people think he's kind of Spock-like, right? In terms of his system to guiding him and not allowing him being very disciplined and not allowing 
you know, him to sort of lunge in one direction or the other on the basis of emotion. But there are That's these, for Daniel Kahneman, right? System one and system two thinking. So not his instinctive kind of reflexive knee jerk, but yeah. actually he's the somebody who kind of goes, no, two plus two, and I add those together, and this is how I get exactly. my answer. Exactly. Right. So, so I think Danny or, and others, including my husband, who writes about behavioral science, but there's sort of Spock on the one side and Homer Simpson on the other, and Barack Obama doesn't have a lot of Homer Simpson in him. But then there are these moments in the presidency. I mean, one that I don't write about is after horrible killings in Arizona of young people, you know, gun violence, and he's speaking and he's out there and he's making his case again for the umpteen time for why we need sensible gun control measures. And just a tear just comes, you know, down his face as he talks about these children. And for me, it wasn't a tear exactly, but it was his level of irritation with me and anger even at times rose proportionally, I think, to his own sense of being tormented by whether he was doing the right thing. And you have a dis- disagreement so bad that you later think it's what made your waters break with your <laughs> with your child, right? Which yeah, is that was an extraordinary on, scene. On it, yeah, indeed. And it, I mean, I think it's almost certain. I can't pinpoint the exact moment, but. Yeah, I was. I, we had promised that we were going to recognize the Armenian genocide, uh, which had happened back begun in 1915. So it was a very long time before Obama took office in 2009. But we promised Armenian Americans we were going to do it. It was the right thing to do because U.S. diplomats have been contorting and euphemizing and doing, you know, saying anything other than the word genocide when everybody knows it's a genocide and it's a historical fact and it influenced the person who even invented the word genocide. So we were going to do it and then Obama takes office and is looking at Turkey as a critical member of NATO, is looking at the economic hole that he is digging us out of and just thinking, do I need to risk a rupture with Turkey even if it's a temporary one? And so he he decides with me not in the room because of all those layers that had gone up mm. that he's not going to recognize. And then I happen to run into him at an event at which he was speaking. He was on his way to the – men's bathroom. And there I was. And there he it's was. It's a vivid scene all around. Yeah. And, here, and here was, I, I wasn't in the men's bathroom, thankfully, <laughs> but I didn't make it easy for him to get there. And, you know, there's the moment and I'm, it's the first time I've been alone with him since he'd been president. This is in April of 09. I've been in briefings with him and so forth. But here was a chance and he looks at me and I'm eight months pregnant and he just says, oh, how's it going? You know, what are you thinking? What are you going to call him? It's a boy, right? You know, and very friendly and sort of just going right. I met, had met my husband on the Obama campaign, an old uh, colleague of, of uh, President Obama, then back then, Professor Obama's at the mm. University of Chicago. So we had that history and, and he, all he wanted to do was just have a light moment where he wasn't thinking about how to get out of Iraq, how to get out of a recession, what to do about Afghanistan. And he says, and so how are you? And I say, I'm really worried about the Armenians. <laughs> And he just glowers and it ends up being this really unpleasant exchange where he's like, well, yeah, you know what? I'm worried about the Armenians too. The Armenians of 2009, the Armenians of the present. And he had been convinced by one of his advisors that this normalization process with Turkey was likely to bear fruit for the Armenians of today, which I thought was uh, false and like like just basically a stalling tactic by the Turkish government. And, And so I argue back and then he's arguing and... And it was so stressful and it was so disappointing. And, and, you know, a major difference of being an outsider advocating, even if you have access and you can reach people and you feel like your message is being heard, is that you can kind of take pride in, oh, I wrote a powerful op-ed. You know, I really nailed the lead, you know, Mm -hmm. or in my one moment with the Secretary of State, I think I succinctly stated my case and addressed the barriers to implementation and gave him or her a pathway for it. And you and then you leave and you're like feeling good about yourself. But in government, when you lose, you know you've lost. Like you know there's nothing else. And I think there was it's the finality you know, on either whether it's something right because you have the possibility of changing stuff. So when you don't change stuff, you well, there's no one else. There's really no other. There's no other country, right? There's no other room. I mean, I have a scene in the book where the deputy national security advisor pulls me aside because I was quiet in a meeting, and then raised a point after the meeting. And he said, "What were you doing? You know, you you have to speak up in these meetings." I, I said, "Well, I just assumed." that somewhere else someone was addressing the point that I was making about whether we knew our rules of engagement when we, you know, went into Haiti. He's like, assume? Assume? You cannot assume in government. In government, 
at this level, we're at the White House. We work for Barack Obama. You're in the cabinet meeting. There's no other room where some really smart, decent people are sitting around figuring out what to do. This is the meeting. You are the meeting. And it's like, oh, shit. Yeah, the, uh, the prime minister, the current prime minister's top advisor said something like this. You know, when you before you start in government, you assume that there's a door with ninjas behind it. Well, oh, funny. And, yes. you know, there are no ninjas. There is no door. And it's I think, just us. Right. Well, you, you kind of mentioned not speaking up in meetings there. So I have to ask you the dreaded woman question. Because throughout the book, there is a subtle thread all the way to talking about breast pumping in Sung Su Chi's house, for example, or about the dress that you wore on your first day as UN ambassador, looking very stripy like a swimsuit. <laughs> but then also the kind of annoyance at that kind of what's it like being the only woman to do this. So how much did you wrestle with, with putting that stuff in the book? Well, I was a late comer to self-awareness as a woman, I think, honestly. I, my, I tell the story of my mother and, and who was a kind of trailblazer in her own family and in her community. And She's becoming, a doctor. She became a medical doctor despite not having access to science classes and so forth as a kid and just always dreamed of doing it. When she tried to get custody of my younger brother and me, the judge uh, you know, actually said in the courtroom, and I feel like I was there, but I wasn't, what right has this woman to be so educated because she wanted to go off to America in part to – get new exposures in the area of kidney transplants. Right, at a time when Ireland didn't have any divorce law. it was No divorce, yeah. not a ton of female doctors. Um, and so here she was pursuing opportunity for herself and for her family and just to be greeted with that. So when I come along and I feel like I get all the breaks and I have all these educational opportunities and my mother has, um, you know, always instilled in me a belief that you, you just set your mind on something and if you work hard, you may not get all the way there, but you'll – You'll make your your small difference, and and so I and then when I got to Bosnia, it was a crop of female correspondents who took me in and and created the first professional community I'd ever been a part of. But then they and your all, Wednesday group, the Wednesday meeting, which is then, all the women who work in the White House. And then, and then. I, but well, that was what I was coming to is that that in Bosnia it didn't seem a liability to be a woman. I mean, it was sort of there were gross things that happened. I can say, didn't very, the prime minister kind of try and the, come on to you in his Weinstein, hotel room? Yeah, the <laughs> Harvey Weinstein uh, yep. precursor exactly tried. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the lechery and, and, and some women, um, you know, had very, very severe um, such experiences that didn't end as mine did with me being able to get out of the way. So it was difficult for some women, but but the solidarity, the, the, we never felt outnumbered. We felt like a team almost. And so then I get to the White House and it's I'm working for this feminist president, Barack Obama, with the, who had this amazing trailblazing mother married to Michelle Obama, one of the strongest, brightest women around, two daughters. And yet that didn't mean that the gender dynamics were all hunky-dory around him. It was a very male-dominated White House. And I'd never had that experience before. And I wouldn't have, it wouldn't have ever occurred to me to convene a group of women to talk about our experience in the workplace because I didn't know that's what was going on. I thought I was being kind of dismissed because I was pregnant maybe or because I was the human rights advisor or because I was new to government and initially didn't know what I was doing. But then a female colleague of mine pulled us together and said, look, there's six women in the senior national security staff out of 26 uh, positions. We got to stick together. How's it going? And then it was like this outpouring. And I was like, wait, that's exactly what's happening to me. And you work on nonproliferation. Like you're not the human rights skunk at the lawn party. Like you're the person who belongs or you're the European advisor. You you have to deal with this. And so suddenly it was like the light went on. I said, oh, jeeps, you know, there is – it may not be the only thing going on. I have other liabilities perhaps, but it is – there is a gender dynamic and the solidarity of what became this Wednesday group where we women would meet and just for a very short time and sometimes bitch a little bit about what had gone on during the week but often just try to back each other up and buck each other up and hear about – give each other the kind of quality of attention that mm. the transactional world of Washington often lacked. And then when I got to the UN – I said, well, we got to do a, the equivalent of the Wednesday group. And Madeleine Albright, when she'd been UN ambassador, had created something called the G7, which is not the G7 that people know today, but it was the Girl 7, which was when she was ambassador in 1993. The seven female ambassadors at the UN had a group that gathered from time to time out of 183 countries. When I got to New York, there were 37 female ambassadors out of 193 countries. 
So we created the G37 and we met and compared notes and tried to collaborate across regions on a range of things. And again, just because you're a woman doesn't mean you're going to agree on mm. what to do about Russia's invasion of Ukraine or or how to think about LGBT rights even for that matter. But we listen to each other and, and particularly for, I think for smaller countries or some of the less developed countries to have – an American ambassador, you know, convene and and celebrate um, what potentially we could do together, I think was was at least a boost of some sort. Well, let's finish up by talking about the situation now, because there was a very, I thought, a very cute quote, which you talk about trying to get any kind of diktat issued, right? I was stunned by the number of cooks in the kitchen, not at all surprised by how blandly the resulting White House statements often read. Has Donald Trump's Twitter feed destroyed that model? Because you can have all the kind of manicured communiques that you want, but then the next day he's blasting out American foreign policy ideas on Twitter. Or does everybody just kind of ignore them and just... I mean, our foreign leaders just going, hmm, Trump's tweeting again. Um, no, I think they're sort of studying his tweets as if they're Talmudic texts. I mean, I think they're trying to read between the lines to know, is this an enduring sentiment or is this a... Uh, four o'clock in the morning sentiment right. is this um, a Fox News airing a segment on you know yeah, whatever, Kazakhstan and now he's got his, big opinions on Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan all of a sudden yeah. exactly so there's a, I think a question both within the government the U.S. government and around the world about whether a particular missive is one that can be sort of ridden out or whether it's one that is going to have actionable consequences. But I think the larger issue is is not so much on the tweeting, which I, th- I think the larger issue is the tweeting is a reflection of a complete lack of process, a lack of deliberation, a lack of acceptance of dissenting views. I mean, I'm no lifelong fan of John Bolton, the, the former UN ambassador under George Bush, who wanted said you could lop off 10 floors of the UN and it wouldn't make a difference and, and has been very pro-war. In, Extremely in, hawkish on Iran, for example. Very hawkish on Iran, wanted the Trump administration to bomb Iran. But what I will say about John Bolton is that even though he would have known the career consequences for him, he raised his voice against the instincts of President Trump to President Trump was thinking about bringing the Taliban to Camp David around the time of 9-11 as the families would have been grieving the anniversary as they do every year, his affection for Kim Jong-un, his affection for President Putin. So when Bolton raised his voice and said, no, Mr. President, actually, I think here's a counter argument. Uh, here's why I think that would be a bad idea. Trump got tired of it and and gave him the axe. And, and so that – when you think about how high stakes – Decisions like the one Trump made recently to pull out U.S. troops in northern Syria and to leave the Kurds of northern Syria to fend for themselves against Turkish air power and a Turkish onslaught. I mean, that the, that sort of whim, getting off a phone call with the Turkish president and being like, all right, we're out of there. What do you think the likely consequences of that are? Because it was strange to me to see that and then the capt- uh, the killing of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of Islamic State, which looked like a success in the model of, uh, you know, Obama's famous, cap- you know, uh, Yeah, well, there's going to be a lag, uh, you know, not a lag for the Kurds, who 200,000 of whom have been displaced, thousands of whom may already have been killed. We have very poor visibility into what is happening now in northern Syria because of our departure. But the long-term, sort of medium-term and long-term consequences are catastrophic. I mean, the way at a time of war fatigue in the United States, but a time when threats persist – the way that the Obama administration and now handing over to the Trump administration prosecuted the war against ISIS was to outsource the fighting and outsource the dying mm. on one level. They took 11,000 casualties, the the Kurdish forces. And the Baghdadi operation is one to be celebrated. I mean, Lord knows um, his uh, his sort of neutralization on the stage, for lack of a better Term, I mean, he was an extremely demonic uh, figure, really, who who was responsible for monstrous acts. But the intelligence that allowed U.S. forces to um, secure what could have been his capture, but ultimately, uh, since he self-detonated his killing, that intelligence came from those Kurdish forces. And so the idea that you are going to be able to effectively protect U.S. national security 
when the next time you go to a ground partner, whether a non-state actor or a state actor, and say, hey, we'll be there for you on the back end, and they'll say, well, really? Well, what just happened to the Kurds who took 11,000 casualties to fight in territory that they had no intention of ever um, residing in because it wasn't lands that they had historically occupied? How'd that work out for them? And as we try to cultivate local sources, so much of intelligence cultivation involves trust and mm. relationships and the knowledge on the part of local actors that you'll be there on the other side if they need to be extracted because of the risk that they've taken on behalf of whatever the cause is. So this is um, Baghdadi notwithstanding, the, the, the long-term effects of this blow to American credibility, the near-term effects uh, to people who sacrificed on our behalf is, uh, I think, is devastating. My final question is, under the own principles that you laid out about intervention, when it should be used about other strategies apart from military uh, that you can use, can you give me a grade for the Obama administration? How well did you do it living up to your principles? You know, I'm at Harvard where there's all kinds of great inflation, so you, you, don't, okay. want, you don't want my grading. But I think w- where we did really well was opening the toolbox, elevating um, a potential issue of mass atrocity before it got out of hand, convening the high-level decision-makers so that if there was a low-cost tool to employ on – and I tell a story in the book on South Sudan, on Cote d'Ivoire, on Central African Republic, even on LGBT rights where it wasn't a mass atrocity situation but where there's so much violence uh, against gay and transgender people around the world – um, you know, we really made a difference by virtue of just that intentionality and not allowing things to be that are sort of lower priorities, let's say conventionally, to be settled at lower levels because then they don't get settled at all. There's just gridlock within the bureaucracy. I think where we struggled is when you bump up in – and Syria is the best example of this – where you've exhausted the tools in the toolbox, where you've done everything short mm-hmm. of military force and then you are staring out at the very, very real dilemma of do you risk military entanglement in the Middle East again <laughs> or um, do you sort of try to energize diplomacy through sheer force of will? And, well, and look, that we're, just we're out of time work. and I could carry on this conversation for an incredibly long time. It was a book that I really enjoyed. I thought it was both very interesting about you and about your personal ability to make change happen and how governments work as an insight into that and also an insight into some of the the most appalling conflicts of the last 20, 30 years. So Samantha Power, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Helen. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing... Right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades – And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.